0: Welcome. I'm Sheila Murti, president and founder of the Murti Law Firm. For today, I have with me two of our brilliant attorneys, Brian Green and Dana DeLott. Brian does a lot of special project work, and Dana is one of our incredibly brilliant senior attorneys that has been with the firm, I think, um, over a dozen years at this point, at least, at the Murti Law Firm, and has over 20 years immigration law experience. So, You are going to hear some really fun and cool things, special gift for you all with cutting edge ideas and strategies to help you plan how you can increase your chances for an approval, minimize your chances of a denial and what to do and how to deal with complex requests for evidence, notice of intentions to deny, etc. Some of the tips and case studies and success stories that we will share with you will make a huge difference in helping you as a company, as an employer, and helping your employees so that they can work with great peace of mind and do an amazing job for you as the employers, so that your profits continue to rise. Um, We, of course, at the Murthy Law Firm, deal with a variety of clients and cases, so we'll share some of our unique needs Uh, and some of the challenging situations. As you as employers know that you're often approached by the prospective H-1B employee who has been recently laid off by a recent employer. One obstacle for you is how you can hire such a person uh, and whether the person will be able to obtain an H-1B extension of status in the U.S. Uh, Or will the person be required to travel abroad and return to the U.S., to, return, to regain, uh, f- get a fresh I-94 at the airport by the Customs and Border Protection. Uh, sometimes they may be required to obtain a brand new H-1B visa stamp in the passport. And of course, for you as employers, time is of the essence because you have a project, a program, whatever that needs to get started. The client needs the person immediately. Uh, in any kind of industry, whether it's a hospital or whether it's a technology company or a software company or an insurance company, you need to serve your clients. And so I guess that's the issue is, Brian, in a situation like this, how can the the uh, an attorney, whether it's the Murthy Law Firm or another brilliant lawyer, help with such situations, help employers?
1: It is a tough situation, Sheila, and Murthy Law Firm has had a lot of success over the years in addressing this for a number of employers. And the important thing is that if the layoff has recently occurred, if there's a short amount of time from when that last employer withdrew the H-1B petition, when the new employer is ready to file their H-1B petition, we can use a very powerful tool called NUNC tunc that allows USCIS to exercise its discretion to approve the H-1B with that very important I-94 card, at the bottom. By doing this, USCIS is forgiving that gap of status from, the end, from that layoff date until the filing of the new H-1B, and that puts that person back into H-1B status without going outside the country, as you explained.
0: Aha, wonderful. Okay, well, that makes sense, and that's fabulous. And, Dana, are there any lessons or takeaways that we can offer to employers?
2: I think the important thing for employers is to know that there is an option in this situation because, as Brian mentioned, time is of the essence. And what I often see is that people uh, will spend so much time looking at this and wondering what to do that, that they that valuable time. And while employees need to move quickly to find new employment, our employer listeners need to also act quickly to go ahead and, and get those cases filed with the strategy that we use where it's appropriate and um, you know enhance the chances that this will that this will work. And employers also should contact the Murphy law firm when they're thinking about layoffs so they know what to do and when looking to hire some recently laid off H-1B workers.
0: I think that's the essence is be strategic, be proactive. Don't wait till after the fact. If you know you're going to have a layoff or you're thinking of hiring somebody that's been terminated or laid off, it's absolutely important as the employer to say, how can we minimize it? Because the last thing you want is for your employee to go outside and then be stuck for three months or six months with some crazy visa delay or visa issuance or travel delay or what have you. Okay, so another trend that we're noticing and that I'm sure you guys have seen as well, which is certainly of concern to you all as employers, is where the USCIS has raised the H-1B master's cap concerns months or sometimes even years after having approved the initial H-1B for a person who has a master's degree from the United States. The issue surrounds approval of H-1 cases under the master's category or quota for people who had obtained the master's degree from a private and for-profit schools, which legally and technically do not actually qualify under the U.S. master's cap exemption. This can be extremely annoying, disruptive, scary, where the employee finds out after several years of H-1B employment in many cases that the person may end up losing the H-1 status because the quota or the cap for this year is already met. So what can uh, the law firm, uh, especially if it's the multi-law firm, what have we done in such cases to provide support or guidance or help for employers and employees?
1: Brian? we just had a case that's exactly the scenario you put forward. And there, the H-1B cap case had been approved. And several months later, the employer filed an amended H-1B petition. And USCIS did not find the problem with the cap case. They issued a notice of intent to deny the amended H-1B petition saying, hey, this person went to a for-profit university for their master's degree. They didn't qualify for the master's cap. We're going to deny the amendment. And Murphy Law Firm took a very aggressive stance and said to USCIS in a response, this is not fair. The H-1B approval of the cap case is still valid. You have not disturbed that. And we explain that had they found that mistake during the cap, that case could have been approved under the 65,000 numbers that are available under the regular cap for those who have bachelor's degrees. And USCIS agreed with the Murthy Law Firm response, and they approved the amended HME petition. So I think you have to be strategic, as you're saying, and be very uh, assertive, but you have to know exactly how to pr- to make this argument to USCIS and Murphy Law Firm has done it successfully in the past. We've also seen a variation of this where USCIS is receiving H&B petitions where sometimes uh, employers have filed H&Bs themselves in-house and they've checked off the master's cap box by mistake. And USCS is now finding these after approving them, and they're issuing notice of, an, notice of an intent to revoke these cases, saying this was an improper approval the first time. And it causes a lot of stress to both the employer and the employee. And Murphy Law Firm has also successfully responded to these NORs, arguing, hey, if you had found this mistake back in April during the cap, that case would have gone into the general non-masters quota and the case could have been approved. So we've been successful in both types of cases.
0: Uh Aha. Okay, so the first case is where we've talked about the master's for profit. And the second time is where there was just a typo, a mistake by the prior law firm, somebody else, obviously not here at the Murti Law Firm, where the case came to us with the notice of intention to revoke because it was incorrectly checked off. And so we were able to argue that this mistake is not a ground to deny the filing um, because it would have fallen under the regular cap. Fascinating. I guess it shows what brilliant, creative, strategic thinking and lawyers can do to help you and your business continue to succeed in a tough, tough market. Dana, are there any lessons or takeaways for employers?
2: I think there's some very important lessons uh, from this particular example. And frankly, while those two cases worked, they only worked because the timing was just right for us to be able to argue that, hey, there were still numbers available in the regular cap. Had the timing been different, we wouldn't have had that argument. And, you know, unless we were able to f- come up with something else uh, even more creative, it, the the results may not have been so positive. So the, the point is, to me, that, that H-1 petitions, you know, they're not so simple. The even small mistakes, like checking the wrong box or not understanding the master's uh, degree exceptions, you know. It, can result in disaster later. You may have an approval in hand, and it's just sort of a problem waiting to happen when the USCIS happens to notice that your master's degree is not that your employee has is not exactly the type of master's degree that qualifies for that exemption. And you know, a year later, two years later, they're they're um, disrupting the whole process. The point here really is that wise employers don't make the mistake of entrusting their important immigration filings to non-lawyers. This is what happens when you have people playing lawyer. And you know, while we do understand that everyone wants to save money on fees, it's, it's sort of a short-term savings with long-term ex- disaster. It's like building your house on a cheap piece of land because there's quicksand there. You, when you get NORS uh, issued be, or, or revocations issued because of these mistakes, it's far more expensive, far more disruptive, and it's just, it's damaging to the employer's reputation and the um, their relationship with their employees and everything else. And so while, you know, we, of course, are happy to help anyone who receives a notice of intent to revoke or a notice of intent to deny or runs into these problems, um, we're actually much happier to work with <laughs> people in advance and to try to prevent um, these kind of problems. And, you know, Money-wise, it's always cheaper to do it right the first time than to try to fix it after the fact.
0: That's right. It's always, as we say, penny-wise and pound-foolish. We, All of us are guilty of that from time to time, but I'm always I, amazed how, how much people are willing to throw when, when it's kind of so much more risky and after it's the fact. I always then call it's, pre- it's like are Isn't you're, they say prevention is cheaper than cure?
2: Exactly. You're calling the plumber when you have a flood instead of, you know, letting them fix that little thing that,
0: oh, <laughs> you know... Interesting. Okay, so now we're moving on from H-1B denials in different situations to an ability to pay issue, which often comes up in the I-140 context, but could come up in other contexts as well. And as employers become more successful and continue to grow your business, you often begin to sponsor a larger number of workers for the green card. And one result is that the USCIS may often issue a request for evidence, as we know, on the employer I-140 petition asking the employer for proof of the ability to pay every single worker that is being sponsored for the green card. Here at the Murthy Law Firm, we we have helped you know several hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of employees, um, and we see this situation where, for example, in the recent past, we've seen where we've helped a client where the company was not paying the full Department of Labor required mandated prevailing wage or proffered wage, Uh, and even more important, where the employee did not have the sufficient net income or net current assets to be able to satisfy and satisfactorily meet the ability to pay test under the standard analysis that the government has. And unfortunately, this is a common issue, especially for smaller companies. So, are there any kinds of ideas or strategies that we have used in these situations, Brian, to help our
1: clients? I think we're lucky that we've had so much experience with ability-to-pay issues and different green card issues over the over the years, because we've seen a lot of variations. We have developed a lot of unique strategies. So, in this particular case. We we saw the problem, as you said, the profit wage was not being paid to the worker or the other workers, and there were not sufficient net current assets or net um, income to show the ability to pay. So we had to go outside the box, and we had to create a customized response to USCIS, and we argued that the company did have the financial wherewithal over the years that the company had been in business, but also that the owner of the company, this company was owned by one individual, that this owner had the financial ability to pay for all these workers, if there was five or ten sponsored workers. And we actually included with this a promise from the owner to USCIS, I will pay these proffered wages when these green cards are approved. And it was successful. USCIS looked at the case on an individual basis, and they approved the I-140. So I-, I think it's important to not give up on a case, even when it looks like it's not been set up very well. There's, there's a chance to try to remedy it here.
0: And also we've tried very many, many other creative ways uh, in which to try to solve the problem by showing assets and liabilities, by showing exceptions, by showing some of the employees have left the company, no longer on the payroll. I mean, different kinds of strategies to meet and try to overcome uh, potential request for evidence or a notice of intention to deny the I-140 petition. And Dana, what are the lessons or takeaways in terms of planning for employers? I think the lessons, again,
2: are similar to before that what you need in most cases is some long-term planning, and that really should be part of all every employer's immigration filings. This type of RFE really could have been anticipated. And while we were able to resolve this issue, um, it, it did require non-standard arguments that the USCIS uh, may or may not accept each and every time. And some of this risk could have been minimized by, again, sort of some advanced planning, looking at the finances, maybe shifting some money money around in advance, maybe deciding how many people to sponsor, how to pay them, all sorts of things like that that could have been explored in advance rather than trying to kind of dig it out of the fire after the fact. So with that, we, again, suggest that you come to us in the planning stages so that we can see these pitfalls before they occur and, again, make a smoother process all the way around.
0: Well, makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. Thank you very much. So the next situation that we're going to share with you is how, and I know this is the dreaded phrase for those of you who've unfortunately had to come across this, the, the section of the Immigration and Nationality Act called 212A6C, which is the word, the word, the, the, the section of the law for fraud. So fraud or misrepresentation. When the government issues a 212A6C fraud finding, it's like the kiss of death. People talk about it as a lifetime bar, people talk about the risk, people talk about this, but the bottom line is Many, many H-1B workers and green card workers have been subject to scrutiny by both the U.S. Department of State, the consulates, and by the U.S. CBP, the Customs and Border Protection Officers at an airport or other port of entry, what we call the POEs. So we have uh, discussed this with many individuals who travel and who arrive at international airports. And very common after a long, tiring flight, as you can imagine, from halfway across the world and from places like India or China or even Europe. If you haven't slept all night, it's tiring. And then you're escorted out into a secondary inspection area where a whole bunch of people come to you and look at your papers and documents. Then they they ask questions, for example, from an H-1B worker. They interview them. They check their laptops, their mobile devices. They sometimes make them open their suitcases and luggage to check their personal papers to see if there's any mismatch in the documents. And the uh, CBP inspectors, really, they're looking for any variations or conflicts between what they see in the laptop or in the cell phones between the electronic communication and other documents and the contents of the employer's petition itself, which they have available with them because the person may have brought it or they have access through the government databases. Uh, and sometimes they even have access to what this mentioned during the Department of State consular visa interviews. I'm sure you've seen it. We've certainly seen it here at the Murthy Law Firm where employees' uh, resumes don't match what was mentioned on the petition. Um, And in cases, we have been contacted, unfortunately, when the person is refused entry into the U.S. One common example is the mistake of listing an end client on the resume as one's employer. We have seen this routinely with tech workers. They do that all the time because they think that's what shows their true work experience. And worse still is if the employee gives an incorrect answer during questioning by the CBP at the Port of Um, at the airport because oftentimes they're a little confused. They don't remember details. They're exhausted. They haven't slept properly. And I know there's a lot of research done on the brain not working very well when you haven't had a good night's sleep. And so CBP will take the position that now the individual has made a fraudulent or false statement while seeking an immigration benefit, namely the benefit to seek admission into the U.S. So, Brian, can you share examples of successful results or outcomes for individuals that we have been able to help so that the company is able to take advantage of these workers?
1: Yes, Sheila. There's a case I I worked on personally, and I'm very proud that we had a successful outcome here. The problem is the worker came in and they had an electronic copy of a resume that they called a draft resume, and the resume they had listed that they had worked for an IT company that they actually had not worked for. It, It was not a true statement on that document and did not match the information that CBP was able to gather whether it was from the USCIS database as you mentioned or calling the employer on the phone. So as you're saying if someone has on LinkedIn or the resume I worked for some big company, I'm just gonna use IBM as example, that may be the end client, and they may be very proud of the fact that they're providing services, but those services are provided through you, the employer that filed the H&B petition. And CBP has gotten very savvy in the last five, six, seven years on H&B issues. So the officers have questionnaires. They have a set of questions that are designed for H&B workers, especially tech workers, and they will ask point by point, where do you do your work? Where do you report to? And it may sound like the HMB control issues that we deal with on a daily basis, but if the employee says, "Oh, I work for Nike or I work for Comcast. and if the HMB was filed by you know Indus technology software conglomerate, they have a conflict and the worker has now made a misstatement. and as Sheila said, That's a a fraud. You're seeking an immigration benefit. You're asking to be admitted into the country. If you make a false statement to an officer trying to gain that benefit, that can qualify qualify as a 212A6C fraud finding. In this case, we were able to directly contact the CBP office where the fraud finding was made. And we explained that this was a draft resume. It was not submitted to USCIS. It was not given to the consular officer at the post that issued the visa. This, this resume was never used. So therefore, there was no fraud. You know, the employee made a misstatement to the officer. It was not material to the case. And to their credit, CBP looked at the issue, they removed the fraud finding, and that worker was okay to be admitted to the U.S. So it took a long time to unravel the problem, but it was possible.
0: Congratulations. I mean, that is just. Awesome. I think nine out of 10 people with a fraud finding think it's like the kiss of death, think it's a lifetime bar. And being able to contact the Customs and Border Protection, negotiating with them and getting a successful result is a testament to both tenacity, creativity and the determination to fight fight like pit bulls for our clients to win the case for them rather than roll over and accept or acknowledge whatever decision the government decides. Uh, Unfortunately, they do hold the trump card. They hold the, the, um, they have, you know, they have your and my tax money. They have a lot of unlimited resources compared to any regular employer. So Dana, what are the takeaways in a case like this?
2: I think just quickly to add to what you were just saying, one thing I think that's important I think there's a lot that's important in this scenario that we just discussed. But one particular thing that's important with the CBP is that when they make a fraud finding, it's not an appeal. We don't have an option to appeal. It's simply as a matter of being able to get to the right people who are willing to, to listen in this particular case. And this, yet again, is a problem best avoided. And what we see with these, it's not only the issue of listing the end client as the employer, it's also issues of having, we'll say, draft resumes in one's uh, computer somewhere uh, that may have extra experience uh, that, that the person never engaged in. Perhaps people want to market themselves as having more experience uh, than they really do. And CBP can look at that as fraud too. So I think the takeaway here is to realize that when someone travels, employers should You know, instruct their H-1B workers that this inspection process, coming back in, is comprehensive. Everything they have with them, their phones, their computers, whatever electronic device that you're now allowed to use, you know, now you can use them while you're on the plane, Um, you know, it's open access if, if the CBP feels like looking at that. So people need to be smart about what they are carrying with them, both in their luggage and electronically. And they need to understand what questions are going to be asked at the port of entry. They need to be very familiar with the issue that Brian raised about who is the employer and who is the end client and need to be you know, accurate, accurate in all of that. And they need to also realize that, again, if the port of entry people want to search anything that's public, you know, whatever, social media, etc., that too could be accessed. So people just need to be smart about how they, um, you know, represent themselves and it all needs to be accurate and, um, you know, consistent. Absolutely. And if it's
0: accurate, it will be consistent. It's easier that way. Yes. And, you know, the most important thing that I think people forget is you feel injustice is being done and you feel like all upset about it. But remember, and I think that was the crux and the key of the issue, and Brian mentioned, really, you can't try to clean it up with, like, the USCIS here or the Department of State here. You have to go back to whoever stamped the fraud. I've found even when you contact, we've contacted consulates before you can't go to a different consulate or to the department of state visa office in washington dc or somebody else you go back to the place that initially placed the fraud because if department of state fraud unit did it then you have to go to them if the uscis department of homeland security and uscis place the fraud notation then you have to go back to the department of state and tell them to contact department of homeland security to clean up the mess because if you don't do it that way that fraud is pretty much going to prevent that particular person from being able to enter the U.S. Pretty much, it, even though they say you have a waiver, it ends up almost becoming like a lifetime bar. Next, we're going to discuss a couple of uh, cases with you all that will help you to understand, which you, many, many of you as H1 employers have probably been familiar with, 221G, what we call soft denials. They're not the 212a6 denials. They're not a complete denial, but they're considered a soft refusal or a soft denial. And these problems are caused when the workers go abroad for what they think is a short vacation, and they're stuck for extended periods of time. And obviously, this can cause problems when the spouse um, is often and ends up being, de- you know, being denied, like the visa, whether it's an H4 or L2 or the F2 for students. So the Murthy law firm recently had this problem where a STEM OPT, uh, which is the science, technology, engineering or math, optional practical training for F1 student was an employee, uh, was working for an employer and the spouse applied for the F2 to join the spouse. And the U.S. consulate saw that the OPT employee had actually changed from one university to a different university. And then... They actually said to the F2 visa applicant that, hey, your spouse is here illegal. There's some problem. The person shouldn't be working. They've already violated their status. This is horrible. And in fact, I had another consultation just last week, at the end of the week, right before Thanksgiving, on this specific issue where they said, um, you know, we're going to deny H4 for the spouse based on the principal having changed employers but having a valid h1 visa stamp and a valid h1 approval notice for the new employer so what can the spouse or the principal do to help obtain the visa for the spouse who could now be stuck abroad for ages
1: it's very tough i think what you're describing here sheila it may be you have a new consular officer, and consul officers rotate frequently from different posts. They come in they move to d c You may have a new consul officer who sees this visa and it's it's for x university or it's for y employer, and they see you know the 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 spouse comes in male or female and and answers questions honestly. At the consular window, and there's this discrepancy between the two details, but it's not a problem. It shouldn't be a problem. What we did was we contacted both the consulate directly, we also emailed the US Department of State in Washington, D.C., and we just explained this is not a problem. You're allowed to do part of your school at one university, transfer to another, have OPT through a third. It's not a problem the 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 i20s are fine and once the consul officer was shown that it was a mistake the f2 visa was issued and i think in, in your consultation from last week we could get the h4 issued as well but just because the government has the power doesn't mean that they always do it use it correctly that there are mistakes made but the problem that the 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 primary whether it's an f1 or h1b person in the us they're working a job and trying to convince a consular officer, you know, eight thousand miles away, that they made a mistake is very difficult. So we at Murphy Law from the attorneys will look for either a, a way to reach that person's manager or maybe an intermediary within the Department of State that can convince that consular officer, who's very busy, and has a very tough job this was a mistake, please re-review, please issue that dependent visa to that person, request their passport, let's get this done and get that person back in the country.
0: Right, right, and I think as, as and I think Brian mentioned this, I think you mentioned this, Brian, where we not just contacted the U.S. particular U.S. consular officer directly, uh, sometimes we contact them and, and they might be willing, but sometimes it, it is lack of training, they don't completely understand it. These are smart, bright kids, but they get only a few weeks of training on immigration law, and we know how complex and uh, difficult it is, it is to understand a million, a gazillion of the nuances. We also talked to the contact, the U.S. Department of State in Washington, D.C., the visa office, who are, by the way, the legal counsel or representatives for U.S. consular officers around the world. And as attorneys, we have direct access to the consular, to the Department of State visa office, to Jeff Gorski, who's the chief liaison unit and his many of his attorneys who will then go back and say, you're right. And they contact the consulate and tell them, this is a legal mistake you're making, you need to issue the visa. And and I think you have to do it in a way that's you know respectful to the person without insulting the person and trying to make it in a way that you tell them that this appears to be an incorrect understanding of the law or mistake, and we would appreciate your issuance of the visa. And even when we contact Department of State, we do the same thing. And it's really, really important because at the end of the day, many of these consular officers continue to stay in their post or position for decades And if you have this reputation of being mean or unprofessional, it will last with us. Uh, And so we work very, very hard to maintain the dignity, but also to fight hard and win the case so that our clients and their families can work together and come back and be together here so that they can be of value to you as employers in the United States. And Dana, what are the takeaways for employers and for applicants?
2: Right. Actually, before I get to the takeaways, I do want to mention something really quickly that I know we meant to say earlier, that while we're talking about general situations that we see happen over and over again, we are talking about some uh, specific case examples uh, from our clients. And I want everyone to know that, rest assured, we do not discuss anything about clients without their permission, any specific examples that we are given. We have the Permit, full permission to discuss them uh, issued by the the individual or company involved. So companies shouldn't worry that you know one day they will hear their case discussed all over you know murthy.com because we do everything else is confidential and, and again, unless we're given permission.
0: So, so just to be clear, you're saying that then the, that if it's very, very generic with no information, it's okay. And we do that or we would I mean, if it's obviously got any details about an employer or employee, we would absolutely not share the date, the time, the airport and those kinds of things. But in general, a very generic, it's like a doctor using the medical knowledge and prior case examples to cure the next patient, it would seem to be fair. General
2: strategies, exactly. General strategies, things that we do over and over again. The first example of of laid-off H1s we see every day, that's not one person's case, that's 100 cases or 1,000 cases but we're, again, just because we have mentioned some specific details about an individual going sound to like the consulate. are thousands
0: of cases. I know, 221G. <laughs> and just to clarify, again, I was in the consulate last month in Chennai, Mumbai, and Hyderabad, and had a meeting with the chief of the consular section and the visa sections in each of the three consulates, actually, for one of our valued clients. And um, I think we were able to make some serious headway, understand what was going on for the company, uh, and we do this to protect an employer that finds that there are patterns where their employees are having a hard time. And we travel to uh, particular consulates on behalf of clients to solve their problems and to establish the credibility of the company and see how we can try to resolve issues.
2: Right. And our, our takeaway from our example of the STEM OPT F1 or F2 denial um, really, I think is that every visa application carries risks, and while we can't anticipate everything that can possibly happen during a visa application, and you certainly can't anticipate every mistake that a, a consular officer may make, um, yeah, it's always best to be fully prepared for the interview and to try to anticipate common problem areas, and. We do some of that work uh, from the Murthy Law Firm, and also some, many people utilize our affiliated office, uh, Murthy Immigration Services Private Limited in Chennai and Hyderabad, for that purpose. And the same principles apply no matter what visa person is applying for, you know, whether it's the F2 or an H1. Again, problem, many problems can be anticipated and headed off before the person leaves the country and goes to apply for the visa.
0: Okay. Thank you very much. So next case, we're going to discuss something that we've seen that's not as common, but it's getting more and more. I know I've done several consultations on this issue. So sometimes as employers, unfortunately, we will face the situation where the employee may die unexpectedly, may pass away, and the employer now wants to try whatever they can do to help the family to remain legally in the U.S., because the last thing you want to do is add more stress to an already a very sad and stressful situation. Fortunately, U.S. immigration law was changed just in the past two or three years, actually in 2010, to help a green card applicant whose uh, family is going to suffer. But if the family, one of the principal passes away, but the primary uh, as the primary you know the employee that's getting sponsored for the green card. Previously, before 2010, if the primary beneficiary passed away, the USCIS could not grant any benefits to the dependent family members because they were dependents. The law only said if the employer sponsored the employee, then the family had to pack up and leave the country. However, the law changed. Uh, And while the changes in in this law from three years ago was clearly, there were big news in the world of immigration law and immigration lawyers. And we actually wrote about this as we do of all of our latest developments on Murti.com, the world's most popular legal website with tons of valuable information. Uh, Obviously, not every other immigration lawyer seems to have received the message because we sometimes get cases where the person, where the lawyer is clueless or the law firm is not even aware of the law. So, Brian, I know you worked on another recent case. Uh, What happened?
1: This was a very sad case, Sheila. A, um, A very, very nice woman was recently married, and was working in uh, the IT industry as her husband did, and unfortunately, pretty early in their marriage, the husband uh, died in an unfortunate uh, car accident. So she's left at this point. She's you know recently married. She had these these dreams, these plans, and she went to her uh, deceased husband's employer and asked, I need some help. What's going to happen with my, my green card case? You know, She and her husband both filed their 45s together. And the employer doesn't know the answer to this question. So the employer calls the attorney that had filed the I-140 and the 485s. And unfortunately, as you said, not every law firm is up to date on immigration law changes. The law firm advised incorrectly that the 204L provision that protects widows and family members who have a primary um, applicant who becomes deceased, that 204L Protection. They said only applied in family-based immigration cases, and that's absolutely not true. In, immig- in business, Im- employment-based immigration cases, that protection is extended the same way. So, unfortunately, that law firm withdrew the surviving spouse's I-45 application, even though she was saying this doesn't seem right to me. I, I see these articles on on different websites, morthy.com. I-, I, s- I think my 45 should be okay, but the law firm withdrew. And, and they, so
0: that's like adding you know, insult to injury because it's bad enough if you don't know the law. The worst part is when someone's telling you there's something out there, you at least need to double check your mm-hmm. sources or do some research before you withdraw an application, you know, costing thousands
1: and, and thousands. And this of dollars. is a woman who just lost her husband and now she has a legal injury. You know, inflicted, and so the special projects department here at Murthy Law Firm. We we receive the case. We have tough cases where legal malpractice has occurred. We try to solve these difficult problems, and the USCIS typically will look at a withdrawn I forty five as being a permanent end to the case. There's just no way to get around a withdrawal of a forty five application. But we didn't give up. We wrote a a late-filed motion to reopen, explained the problems, explained the injury, explained the facts and circumstances, and did it in a way that the human officer at USCIS read this, saw that there was a problem that the law was supposed to protect this person, that the lawyer who had the case originally, not the Murphy Law Firm attorney, but the lawyer before, had made a mistake. And USCIS ultimately agreed on their own motion to reopen the 45 application and the green card was approved, and the woman is not made whole in the sense that her spouse is not back with her, but at least the legal error was corrected, and she has her green card now. So it was a, it was a very satisfying win, it, it took a few attorneys to work. I, I Thank you for mentioning me, but it took a team to win that case. But I think that my takeaway, and I'll, I'll let Dana share hers, is that you don't want to give up on a case if it looks like it's bleak. You want to get a second opinion and see what can we do here.
0: Well, the saddest part, like you said, is it's not only that it got uh, really, I, I don't know. I know you said attorney malpractice. I'm not sure if she decided to pursue. I guess most people just are happy to get a happy solution. They don't care about suing the other law firm or lawyer. And, and you know, <laughs> I guess I don't want I don't you know want to focus on that. But sometimes I feel like when injustice is being done, we really need to fight for justice and we need to do the right thing. Uh, and, and really, I'm glad, I'm so relieved that she was able to get some some peace of mind, knowing that at least her stay in the U.S. was protected for herself. And many times, many of the, the, the women will have, or men, the, sp- the children, they'll have spouses and sometimes children. And, 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 you know, it's so important to give some peace of mind to the family at this difficult time. And Dana, what are the lessons or takeaways?
2: I think the takeaway here, in addition to actually the usaAS being remarkably humane and carrying out really the purpose of those legal changes um, and you know fixing this after the fact is really, as Brian said, the value of a second opinion. And these particular changes in the law, there was a little evolution and it took a while to, to get a memo. So there may have been some lack of clarity there that led to this, this misunderstanding on the part of the other lawyer. Um, but Really, again, the value of a second opinion, particularly where there is a great deal at stake. We provide this service every day. And you know, and pretty much every day, I have someone that calls me with something where I really wish they had gotten a second opinion a year ago or six months ago to avoid, again, some, some serious uh, misstep. Um, so before deciding that something is hopeless, or even maybe before deciding to venture on a particular path uh, Get a second opinion to see if there are options or easier options. And for those out there who are, for some reason, not yet using the Murphy Law Firm for all of their immigration cases, we suggest that you give us an opportunity to provide those second opinions. Um, while we were able to help the widow in this case, it would have been much simpler had, and I'm sure much less stressful for her, um, you know, had someone just approached us before that I-45 was improperly withdrawn. And, you know, we're always just a phone call away and happy to speak with uh, those who need that service.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, we really hope, I know we're very, very mindful of the time, and we try to keep it between 30 to 45 minutes, and I see we're right around a little over 40 minutes at this point. So, uh, we certainly hope that Today's examples have been helpful to you as employers that sponsor foreign national employees. We are discussing these stories and different examples just to give you an illustration of the sorts of situations and problems that you as employers may face with respect to an immigration process for your employees. And these problems can be solved or mitigated by creative thinking and strategic decision making. You and I both know immigration law is not a place for cookie-cutter strategies, that every case has its nuances, its differences. It is important to think outside the box, and the bottom line is to obtain favorable and good results, to keep the employee here, to keep the company profitable so that you can continue to help in creating the world's greatest economy and feeding your family and creating dreams and helping people to accomplish their American dream of living and working in this country while making a decent livelihood yourself. At the Murti Law Firm, we always strive to take care of people to fight for our clients to be pit bulls and to pursue the best strategy available for our client. Um, Of course, besides the difficult and complex cases or denied cases Which we know that we are often contacted for, for, and we are, uh, you know, appreciative and honored uh, at the Murti Law Firm to help you as employers and and your employees. We also hope that we can help you with your standard cookie cutter kind of cases or your other cases, even if they don't appear because many of them appear to be cookie cutter, but they're often not cookie cutters. And in the end, you will save a lot of time and money, avoid a lot of stress and tension both for you and your employees. Uh, which is, in the end, good for business for everybody concerned. On behalf of Dana Delot, our senior attorney, Brian Green, our attorney uh, in special projects, myself, Sheila Murthy, and our entire Murthy Law Firm family, we are delighted and honored that you could join us today, and we look forward to uh, having you with us next month. And in the meanwhile, wishing you a happy holidays, happy new year, and may all good things come to you and continue to make wise and wonderful decisions to hire a law firm like the Murthy Law Firm for any and all of your immigration law needs. Take care and have a fabulous rest of the day. Thank you.